This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Illinois 17th District Representative Sherry Bustos. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congresswoman Sherry Bustos next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. As a member of the House Committee on Agriculture, Illinois Congresswoman Sherry Bustos chairs the General Commodities and Risk Management Subcommittee. She's also led an effort to build a relationship between her party and rural voters. Busto says there is universal support for the trillion-dollar infrastructure package. You can look at all 435 congressional districts in the entire country, and there's not one member of Congress who would say it's not important to their district. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to get all 435 uh, members of Congress to vote for it, but you, you look at what's happened to our roads and our bridges all over this country. I, I came from uh, the western part of Illinois, to go to Decatur, Illinois here, you should have seen the roads. I mean, they are, they're crumbling. Our bridges are in disrepair. If you, it, when you look at this from an ag perspective, think about how far our growers have to go uh, to deliver their, their commodities. You know, they've got to bypass bridges that are out. This is important to every congressional district in the country, and it is going to pass. We're going to vote for it on September 27th. This is the bipartisan bill that came from the Senate. We're not going to change it. And uh, it's going to pass, and we're going to send it over to President Biden to be signed into law. Okay, so how important is the $3.5 trillion reconciliation plan? Well, that's a whole different way of looking at things. First of all, uh, I don't think it's going to end up being at $3.5 trillion. Uh, I, I don't know what that final number is going to be, but it, keep this in mind from a political perspective. We Democrats have a three-vote majority in the House. It's 50-50 in the Senate with the vice president who has to break any tie. So th- that $3.5 trillion number has to get approval by nearly every Democrat with only three to spare. We've got a lot of moderate Democrats who are concerned about that price tag. We've got a lot of Democrats who are considered more progressive who want more money. So what happens when one group wants more, one group wants less? you gotta, you got to make a compromise. And so I don't know what that final number is going to, to end up being, but that is the bill, the let's call it the Build Back Better Act. I know you're talking about reconciliation, but a lot of people don't understand what that all means. So we're calling it the Build Back Better Act. It will likely include some funding for rural broadband because that's not all answered for in the infrastructure bill. Um, it is, that, that's the bill that's looking at universal pre-K. So it is, it is much more than just like a standard infrastructure package. Some people are calling it a human infrastructure package, but it's looking at instead of the traditional kindergarten through senior year in high school, it's now looking at public education, for example, as those two years before kindergarten, so for three- and four-year-olds, and then also looking at community college, so two years after high school, the whole idea being that we 
take a look at education and make sure we are the best educated country in the world and kind of gain back status along those lines as well. There are proposals in there for um, looking at child care in a different way so so parents can go to work. We still have a number of, of parents who can't go back to work because we don't have enough child care out there. So this is a bill that is looking at a lot of different proposals and how families operate, how cities operate. It's it's all-encompassing, and I don't know what the final product's going to end up being. I think it was Congressman Adderholt last year that said, when the house is on fire, you don't worry about the price of water. And the $6.5 trillion that we spent to support through COVID was bipartisan. We recognized that it really didn't matter. We had to do something. So the question is now, and I'm still probing on this, is this essential? I know these things are important, but are they essential enough to add this debt to the bottom line of the nation when we've already done so much? Well, so this will be paid for. Uh, President Biden has said he's not looking to add any more to the debt. And it will not cost any family that makes under $400,000 a cent. In fact, there will be tax benefits to families who earn less than $400,000 a year. But it will take a look at what's happening with our corporations and the taxes they pay. We read these stories or hear these stories periodically about corporations that pay an effective 0% federal tax rate. Uh, so it's going to look at corporations and what they pay to uh, their their fair share for making sure that we have a great country. And it will look at the ultra, ultra rich, the, the top 1% earners in our nation. And, and they're going to have to pay more. I would have believed at the Farm Progress show this past week that there was more than one farmer said something to you about concerned over stepped-up basis, oh, yeah. over inheritance, over corporate taxes. Yep. So the question is, if the president is going to pay for this, is it going to fall on the back of those small business owners and farmers? It is not going to fall on the backs of our family farmers. It's not going to fall on the backs of our small business owners. Here's why I feel confident about that. Um, I was one of the authors of a letter to the White House making sure that our family farmers are not the ones who are, are where this is going to fall to. So when you when you talked about the stepped-up basis, and I've got to hand it to our family farmers, they are in unison on making sure that members of Congress understand the importance of making sure that when a family wants to pass along their family farm from one generation to the next, that they're not going to have to go back and, and look at what, what their great-great-great-great-grandpa paid for that uh, acre of land and what it's worth now and have to pay the difference in, in taxes. So um, I think we're going to end up in a good place on that. Some good language came out of the Senate on a bipartisan basis that said family farmers and small business owners will be exempt from um, making sure that they that this is not falling on them. You took special interest before the last election and were asked to try to help the Democratic Party have a better relationship with rural America. And now it's almost as if you have been retasked with that. I think you're co-chair of a, of a coalition that's been offered. What's the barometer say about rural America and your party, and what are the things you feel like you need to accomplish? Well, after I leave Decatur at the Farm Progress Show, I'm going to be heading over to Iowa where I'm going to spend some time with Congresswoman Cindy Axney. She represents the central Iowa area. We serve on the Agriculture Committee together, and we are co-chairs of what's called the Rural Reinvestment Task Force. 
Um, we will be in full-on listening mode. I, I like to say God gave us two ears and one mouth, and we should use them proportionately. <laughs> We're going to make sure that we know the policies that we should be fighting for what we should be fighting against and that we're doing right by our families who live in rural America. We're doing right by our family farmers and that we have an agenda that's going to help us deliver for them. So is there work that needs to be done in front of the midterm that you see now that maybe you were lacking before that you hope particularly this this build back better or others can help to repair or fortify a relationship? Yeah, I, I think it's all about uh, delivering results. We, we've got to get this infrastructure bill passed, and we're going to. Whatever the Build Back Better Act is, we've got to uh, deliver for our rural families. Look, I'm, I'm somewhat unique from a political perspective. In the state of Illinois, I'm the only Democrat in our congressional delegation in Illinois from downstate Illinois. So all of the rest of the Democrats in our congressional delegation are from Chicagoland. So I wrote a report just recently on the political side of my operation that that's entitled how to win and it's the stories of democrats who have been successful in trump districts the moral of the story is not overly complicated it's showing up in um, you know i have a town called hamlet illinois population is 48 i have knocked on every door in hamlet illinois and i would say there were a fair number of republicans there but i still stopped by knocked on the door listened to them and um, made sure that I, you know, could could have their voice in my head when I go back out to Washington and cast my vote. So it's it, it is showing up, it is listening, and it is delivering results. And I think it's it, it's not an overly complicated political formula, but I think that's what works best. You are a subcommittee chair on the Agriculture Committee. Has Chairman Scott given you any insight into how he may want to proceed with looking at new farm policy? Well, I think we are in a mode where we're still delivering on the uh, what was in the 2018 Farm Bill, but we've got to gear up on what we're going to put into the 2023 Farm Bill. So uh, I was scheduled to do a field hearing in person in Minnesota. It ended up getting taken down because of COVID, but we're gonna we're gonna do these listening sessions out in the on the countryside to figure out what what especially from a um, from a risk management perspective, because the subcommittee that I chair is General Farm Commodities and Risk Management. And so what, what's working? I, I know that coming out of, I, I was part of the negotiating group on the 2014 Farm Bill. I know that uh, when I, we went into 2018, the biggest message that I got was, don't mess with crop insurance. It's working. The biggest message I, we got going into 2014 is that we had to figure out what crop insurance was, was going to be. Remember, we used to have the direct payments. Um, and we, we ended up with a product that has worked pretty well. What do we need to know going into the 2023 Farm Bill? And so I, I think we've got to just be in full-on listening mode. Uh, you know, let me, let me throw WOTUS in there real quickly. We've got to be in full-on listening mode from our family farmers. EPA does not need to be writing regulations without listening to our family farmers. And, and that's how you get policy right. When I listen to former Senator Pat Roberts... When I listened to former chairman Colin Peterson, they both said of the most recent farm bill, we probably wrote the best policy we could afford. So with that in mind, of the spending that we have uh, performed with COVID, with the infrastructure plan, with Build Back Better, with the rest, our budget doesn't look the way that it did so many months before. Will that affect the farm bill? Well, you know, everything when you're looking at policy, uh, the, the money is, you know, intertwined. 
and uh, we like to say that a that a budget is a reflection of your of your values, and so we want to get it right first of all. Uh, but we've got to work within our means, also. And uh, but we, we risk management might look very different going into 2023 when you look at what we're everybody's living through right now. This climate is just weird, right? I mean, I don't. I, that, that's an oversimplified word, but look at Hurricane Ida with, what, 150-mile-an-hour winds that, that hit land. Um, you know, I, my front yard is the Mississippi River, and um, I, I live on a road called River Drive. So, and, and every day I wake up and look outside my window, there's the river. We've had, you know, we've had flooding, the, the, what, what, what they used to call it, the 500-year flood that was happening, you know, every few years. So we've, we've got to get risk management right. Uh, that will be critically important, and, and that's part of what comes, that is what comes under the subcommittee that I'm chairing. And I want to make sure over these next 16 months that I'm, I'm in office that uh, we do everything we can to get it right. So if the budget doesn't look as good as it did, you have to wonder, will you even be able to afford what you did in the last bill, much less add anything else for other areas? And I know that's speculation, and I'm sorry, yeah, but, but just you're thinking about that, it's like, this is not easy. It's a fair question, but I, I think we've got to get our policy right first and and use that as a starting point and then figure out um, what can we afford to do with good policy. And that, that means some things might be left out, but uh, I think we ought to start with good policy first. So the last time that you and I talked, I asked how important would climate be in Washington. And I think you shared with me that nearly everything that came through this Congress would have some tie to climate. And obviously we have heard a lot about that in agriculture. A number of companies already have programs in place and are rewarding farmers for doing particular practices. Does Washington have a place in the policy realm of carbon and of carbon sequestration and of climate? Oh, absolutely. You've got the President of the United States who looks at climate as being the foundation of so much policy, the infrastructure, how we rebuild our country will have a green foundation. Um, as we look at, uh, and we've got the uh, CCC as part of the subcommittee that I'm chairing, how, are we, how does that play into a carbon bank of some sort? We uh, were talking earlier um, uh, during a, a previous conversation about right now where we're sitting, we're on top of this, the uh, Mount Simon sand basin where carbon capture, where ADM is using this as to, to capture carbon right now. But there's going to have to be incentives to do that. Uh, so we're looking at policy from a perspective of cover crops, um, how this carbon bank is going to look. I mean, we've, we've heard this brought up from the USDA, but... How is that going to look? So all of it is attached to some kind of policy. So Chairwoman Stabenow in the Senate is suggesting $50 billion to be added to farm programs to incentivize farmers moving in the direction of, of carbon-smart programs. That would be additional spending to support additional programs. Yeah, well, I think what she's looking at there is there's got to be a financial incentive to do this. And for those who have already practiced, have been using cover crops, for example, um, we, we want them to continue. So there is a cost associated with that. 
again, if you start with good policy, then we figure out how we're going to afford all of it. But you do have to start with good policy. And I and I think it's great that uh, Senator Stabenow is taking a look at that. So I'm leading you here. I realize this. <laughs> but but knowing that there is such a desire to see the, the, the climate addressed and the opportunity for farmers to be able to, to sequester carbon, we only have so much money, and this is now a priority as opposed to something that farm programs change or farm programs come with a requirement of some element of carbon sequestration or climate smart agriculture programs? Well, climate smart agriculture is just, that's good agriculture. But um, as far as requirements on carbon capture, I don't know if we're going to get to that. I I think it's got to be, again, there's got to be incentive. And, um, but I don't know if there's going to be punishment if there, if you've got a family farmer who's just not going to practice that. I, I, you know, there's a long way to go. We're living through very unusual times. We'll see how the policy ends up, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I think incentive works better than, you know, slapping somebody around. So this administration has talked a lot about climate. And this administration, uh, is like the administration before. And like the administration before that, that have said a lot of really nice things about renewable fuel on the campaign trail. And then when they got into office, the horse changed colors. So how do you evaluate this president's push toward electric vehicles and supporting electric vehicles with financial resources, but not so much toward things like ethanol and biodiesel? Are we playing and picking favorites here? Well, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that ethanol and biodiesel plays a, a significant role as we move forward. Uh, we've introduced a brand new piece of legislation just in the last week called the Next Generation Fuels Act that will require manufacturers of vehicles to build build them in a way that can accommodate E20 um, and then over a number of years later up to E30. It also will require the fueling stations to be able to pump E20, E25, E30 um, over the coming years. Look, we're, we're with the goal of, for instance, General Motors of getting to an all-electric fleet, um, we've got a number of years before that happens. And we are going to be using liquid fuel between now and the time that that happens. And we want to make sure that, for instance, ethanol is part of that. And that's why I've, I've written this uh, Next Generation Fuels Act that's gaining support and traction. It's bipartisan. Um, I, I would love to be able to get that all the way through. We're, we're getting that assigned to a subcommittee and going to work on it as hard as we can legislatively. And I anticipate if we're able to get this through, um, I'm not going to accept anything other than President Biden signing this into law. Well, I was going to ask for the, the, the Congresswoman Bustos crystal ball that <laughs> if you could deliver this language, would the president sign it? I think he, I think he would. Look, uh, J- Joe Biden is um, he's a realist. And uh, he does care about the environment. We all care about the environment. But um, he also understands, even if you want to look at it from a political perspective, if any Democrat wants to have any success in rural America, they got to deliver the goods. And this is part of delivering the goods. Well, when you think about this year, even in a rotten year, we're going to get close to producing 15 billion bushels of corn and 5 billion of that goes to ethanol. And if that goes away, then what happens to rural America? What happens to that industry? What happens to all those vehicles that are out there now that have that capacity? We can't let it happen. And that's why I've, I've written this bill. 
um, that we're going to fight to get it passed. And I, I think, look, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Um, we met with the Illinois corn growers earlier, the, the soybean producers, the Farm Bureau supportive, the Farmers Union supportive, Deer's excited about it, ADM is excited about it. I mean, obviously, they're all stakeholders. Um, but but we also even have one of the automobile manufacturers who's supportive of this. They're not going to be overly public about it. Um, we want to. I, I want to have a conversation with the leadership of the United Auto Workers to to have them be supportive. This is this is going to be jobs for them as well. And if you think about, we have ninety thousand labor households in the congressional district I represent, with UAW having among the biggest uh, membership in our congressional district. Um, I want to bring them into this because that's part of their future as, as well. Look, I, I think if we build a, a, just keep growing our coalition of support for this. If we get the Energy and Commerce Committee, which this will have to go through, I want to uh, my, my shout out to anybody out there. Is if, if your member of Congress uh, is in is on the House Agriculture Committee or is on the Energy and Commerce Committee, talk about this. This is critically important that we get this through, and and the time is ticking. Um, I, I've got a real sense of urgency around this, and want to want to make sure that we're successful on it. Your legislation could actually be a step better than the waiver for E15 to be able to sell that through the summertime because it would allow consumers a choice for even a higher blend than what's available absolutely. in some areas now. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking about E20 and then going to E25, E30. And and having your vehicle be able to burn this, which, by the way, you, again, if you look at the Biden administration and having this green underlayment, the environmental underlayment of so much of their legislation... Um, look what ethanol burns cleaner, and uh, so we, we reduce the greenhouse emissions, so lower the carbon, and, um, and it's higher octane. So I mean, it, this is like a win for our environment. It's a win for our family farmers. It's a win for rural America. Is there money in your language for infrastructure, for blender pumps, for, for the infrastructure that would take the product and make it available to the consumer. There, there are tax incentives for the manufacturers of the vehicles. And right now, in fact, I actually had this conversation earlier today, there is not, there are not tax incentives for the build-out. Um, I think we're probably going to have to look at something like that. You've served your district wholeheartedly and been a voice for agriculture. So a, a question for reflection now yeah, so I'm I'm in this job for another 16 months. I I am working all the way up through January 3rd of 2023. My goal is to do the best job I possibly can. I am, I've got my foot on the gas pedal. We are uh, that burns ethanol, hopefully, and uh, um, and I, we've got a lot of things started that I want to finish. We we've had bills that we have introduced over several congressional sessions that. I, I want to be able to get over the finish line. I would love to be able to get the Next Generation Fuels Act completed. I think members of Congress, or whatever you do for a living, you take with you your background, your you know what, where you grew up, how you grew up. In my in my case, we've got a long line of, of family farmers, and I'm proud of that. I want to do right by our family farmers. I want to do right by the 711,000 people in this congressional district, and so I'll work as hard as I can for the next 16 months at doing that and then after that I'm still figuring out my next chapter but I've got a little time to figure it out well Congresswoman we want to thank you for being with us on this edition of Open Mic thank you for being here it is Open Mic and you have the last word 
I, I, I think it's uh, to thank you. You every, every time uh, you and I have had a conversation, I'm glad we could be in person today. A lot of times it's uh, by phone, but uh, uh, thank you for always being prepared, asking great questions, and thanks to your listeners to um, you know for taking the time to hear from this member of Congress who um, you know I, I guess is just doing my level best to to represent our family farmers our. Um, again, the families in our congressional district who, I, I, I think the common denominator for people in my congressional district or anywhere else, they just want to be able to support their families, do a good job. These are tough times right now, and, you know, let's give each other a break. Let's uh, give each other credit. You know, let's get our jobs done, and, and I'm going to continue to work as hard as I can for these next 16 months to make sure I deliver on that. Our thanks to Illinois 17th District Representative Sherry Bustos, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.